Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space. We get to go on a really interesting journey today. A colleague, uh, a fellow physician, Aline Gregosian is joining us, and we are going to walk through the unbelievable journey that she has been on for the last several months as both a physician and someone who was getting ready to move into the sharpest of the sharp edges of the work that we do as doctors who got really sick and had to move through some different extraordinary challenges at the sharpest of sharp edges. And I'm really looking forward to having the opportunity to speak with her about what happened and where she is and the experiences that she's had. Before we jump into that conversation, I just want to please invite and welcome everyone listening. Come and check out the website, www.explorethespaceshow.com. The archive is there. We've got over a hundred episodes now. The content from when we started in 2015 is as good as the day we recorded it. Please go and look around. It's, it's eclectic. It's fun. It's packed with good content. You can find me on Twitter at ETS show. You can email me anytime, mark at explorethespaceshow.com. And it's really wonderful to interact with people who are enjoying or listening or have feedback around the show. Please subscribe on your favorite platform. We're on all of them, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you like to download the show. And I would just ask you, please, for this show or any other podcast you like, please be sure to subscribe. Please leave a rating and a review. That's the most powerful tool available to help amplify a show and to really bring it forward so that more people can find the content that you're enjoying. Having said all that, let's jump right in. Aline has been through an extraordinary journey. We're going to jump into it. Aline, Mm -hmm. welcome. Thank you so much, Mark. Thanks for having me. You are a heart transplant patient. Let's just start right there. What does it feel like when you hear someone say you're a heart transplant patient? I, it's it's still surreal. Yeah. It's but but it's weird because I don't think of it as a big deal anymore. Like wow. as a physician, I thought a heart transplant was crazy, but as a patient, I'm like, okay, well, I have a new heart. Um, but it is still surreal. Let's start from the middle. For people who listen to this show, I like to start at the beginning. I don't want to do that today. I want to start in the middle. I want to start right in the heat of the moment. There are different types of what we call in medicine physiologic shock. And what we mean by the term shock is basically the human body from a physiologic perspective is collapsing and moving towards death. There are types of shock where it's because you've lost a lot of blood, where you've become really, really dehydrated where you have a really, really bad infection and all your blood vessels are dilating and you have inflammation all over the place. And when the pump is failing, when the heart is not working properly, that's the type of shock we're going to be talking about. It's called cardiogenic shock. You had cardiogenic shock. And I want to start there. I want to start with that place of being in cardiogenic shock. What does it feel like to be in the prime of life to be a resident getting ready to finish training, to be fit and active, and then very quickly move to a place where your heart is failing and without very rapid interventions, you're going to die. What does cardiogenic shock feel like? So physically, that's a good question. So um, phys- there's, there's, I'm going to talk about how it felt physically, but also how it felt like psychologically. Absolutely. Let's start <laughs> on that physical part. What does it feel like? 
People have been ill. We get cold. Some people have been really sick. Some people have been what a good friend of mine likes to call deep water sick. This is the deepest water sick. What does it actually feel like moment to moment to be in cardiogenic shock? So if you know my, my story, well, you, you can read it, but um, basically I ended up getting hospitalized and I was a rapid response on myself. And the reason was because my heart was failing. What, now, what does that mean when you're saying you were a rapid response? Were you in the hospital working or what actually happened? No, I got admitted for, okay. for a cough that we thought was possibly a pneumonia, but we were kind of unsure. My chest x-ray was weird. Um, and I had had that cough for like over six weeks. But when I was on the floors, I, 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 I don't remember like exactly what time, but it was a few hours later. Um, I just remember looking up at my monitor. I, I was feeling kind of like nauseous. I looked up at my monitor and my heart rate, which was initially when I went to the emergency room as a patient was in the one forties and one fifties. And that's like, not good. That's fast. Um, yeah. That's very fast. And that was one of the reasons why my attending like forced me to get admitted because he was like, I don't like the way your heart's looking and all that. But basically when I was on the floors, my heart rate went from 150 down to like the twenties. And yeah, so I had acutely decompensated at that moment. And the way it felt physically was like, you know how in medical school, so we learned that cardiogenic shock has like, it's like cool and clammy. If you, if you're like doing a physical exam, that's exactly, I, I got really cold but I was sweating. And I'm not just talking about like beads of sweat. I was sweating like, like a waterfall was dripping down my face. Wow. And, and I remember, um, but, and then people were talking around me. And at that point, a rapid response was called. So that means that a whole team, uh, like the ICU doctors and residents, the anesthesia residents, um, the surgical residents all come to my room because I'm like acutely decompensating. And so, I could see them, but I didn't understand what they were saying. Like, it was almost like, yeah. So I remember everybody was talking. I had no idea what they were saying. And then the, and then I remember one of, one of the residents was trying to get like either an IV or, or a, a, like an arterial um, stick or something. But, um, I remember things were being done to me, but I don't really remember the feeling. Like I wasn't in pain or anything. It was just really sweaty. And then right then, the, o- the only thing I remember is they were trying to put the pacer pads on me, but I was so sweaty that they couldn't. And somebody, oh my gosh. Yeah, that's, that's, how, that's how bad it was. And somebody said, should we turn this into a code? And that, <gasps> that was the last thing I remember. So I had no idea if I got coded. Like I, I, had, wow. I didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. Did you have a moment where you felt I'm dying? Yeah, actually in that moment, I was like, well... <laughs> think I'm about to die. But weirdly, like I wasn't panicking. I mean, I don't know what the nurses and residents would say I looked like. I probably looked sure. like I was freaking out. But in my head, I was kind of like, I think I'm dying. Like everything's going to be okay. Like for some reason, wow. I was very calm. It was very strange. I, yeah, it was very, very weird. Was there an abrupt transition point where you're in the ER and you're tacking away at 150 and you're not feeling good and then all of a sudden your heart rate drops to the 20s? Was that abrupt or was it sort of a subtle thing or did you just have that moment of, whoa, I feel really different and then you kind of realize that things are things were collapsing? It was pretty abrupt because um, I, I got nauseous and yeah. because of that I like looked up at the monitor and then I was like, oh my God, like it was in the 30s. Like it was It was crazy like seeing that heart rate. Um, and I knew something, I mean, obviously something was wrong. So we've, we've sort of done that thing that they do in, it's that sort of movie trope where they start you off in the middle and they show you some 
unbelievably provocative, scary, <laughs> bizarre, all of the adjectives, right? Like my heart rates up just listening to you and I knew your story. <laughs> when you, when you speak about it now, does it, what does it feel like? What, what, what adjectives would you associate with some other doctor who you've never met on a podcast? You're on the East coast. I'm on the West coast. And I'm asking you, what does it feel like to go into cardiogenic shock and to think you're about to die? Now that you can separate yourself from it a little bit, what, it, <laughs> and I ask from a place of, you know, real curiosity, cause your journey is, 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 is so amazing. What does that feel like? So I get asked about it all the time, especially because most of the people that I deal with are doctors and residents and, yeah. you know, my attendings. So actually yesterday I went to a brunch with one of my attendings and I had to say the whole story over again, <laughs> but sorry, no, it's okay. I actually love telling my story Good. because I, 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 I can, that. yeah, I can learn. I mean, I think people could learn a lot from it. Yes. And, and so I, I in a weird way, I guess I feel proud to tell my story, sure. which, which, you know, I mean, I went through a lot, but I overcame it all. And, and that's where I'm at right now. So I don't mind telling my story at all. Um, it's still kind of surreal talking about like the rapid response itself. Um, and then a lot of people will also ask me like things like when you were intubated, like, did you hear what was going on around you? And that's just strange for me because I don't remember anything. So some of the questions that I get asked are like strange. Um, because I don't remember anything from, yeah. from being sedated. Um, but yeah. That's... How big of that window is there where you have that retrograde and probably some amount of, of anterograde amnesia? How much, how much time do you not have? Are you talking about like from the ICU? If yeah. You get... So from that yeah. moment where you, as you, you know, so eloquently described feeling like, I think I'm going to die. Everything's going to be okay. To when you then now have memories again, how, how many days elapse in that space? Hmm. I remember, I didn't remember much the next day because yeah. I, 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 w I woke up and I was like trying to self extubate. <laughs> but, oh, no. Yeah. And I, had, I was in like four point restraints. It was hilarious. Oh but, my gosh. Um, and apparently I was very difficult to sedate. They had to use like Presidex and uh, propofol and fentanyl on me. Oh um, my gosh. I know. I know. You found I was, superhuman I was, strength. I was, I was proud of that. You turned into um, a superhero all of a sudden. <laughs> but, um, but maybe so, so I was still kind of sedated for the first few days, yeah. like I would say two to three, two to three days. And then I think by maybe like within a week, I started to remember things again. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's, that's probably the best. Um, okay. Yeah. Estimation. So then let's, let's sort of lay it out for people, right? On this show, we have lots of people who enjoy this podcast who are in healthcare. And so some of the things we're talking about, they have some understanding of, even though that what you experienced is way, way, way out in deep water. But there's a lot of people who would really like and, and enjoy this show who are not in medicine. And they come here specifically to learn, specifically to have an understanding of what that whole healthcare equation looks like. So for, for all of us, what had happened? What happened to your heart? And what, what were the steps that then took place that brought you to where you are now? So around Halloween, keep in mind that I was at the prime of my life. So I was really happy with, yeah, I was like really happy with everything. I was yep. 30 years old. I had just matched into critical care. Um, I like socially, academically, everything was going well. Um, I'm, I'm fit. I, I exercise, I think, you know, on a weekly basis, not, not so much daily. Um, and so everything was going fine. I just, I had a cough. Now that cough, I remember started right around Halloween because I remember on 
Halloween, like the next day I woke up with it. So that, that's how, that's how I remember that. But it might've been like a few days before that or a few days after that, but I'm using that, um, that holiday right. as, and this is like, Halloween 2018. This is not long ago. Right. 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 So I had a cough and then I was like congested. I didn't think much of it. I mean, I'm a resident. We get sick all the time. <laughs> <Totally>. <laughs> I think two of my co-residents had the flu. Yeah. Like, so I didn't think much of it. And then the cough like would come and go. So like there would be like two, three days where I didn't, I didn't have a cough and then it would come back and then it went on and it went on and it went on. And I had never had a cough. I actually up, I used up to date, which is like the search, you know, the, the tool that we use to like look up certain algorithms and protocols in medicine. But I went to up to date and I looked up like when, you know, what, at what week should you get a chest X-ray? And I, I read it was six weeks, which I remembered. So at that point I was like, okay, I've had a cough for six weeks. I should probably go to the doctor. Um, and, but specifically maybe like a week later, I, I was working in the ICU and my attending noticed that I was short of breath. And she said something along the lines of like, you look short of breath. Like you have to, I had to stop when I was talking to her to catch my breath. And and when she said that, that kind of scared me. She's like, you should really get that chest x-ray. You know, something might be wrong. But the worst I thought it would be was like post-viral, like reactive airway disease or maybe a pneumonia that just hadn't gone away. You know, you can have shortness of breath with those too. So I, I try, like I went, I did my whole shift. I continued to work for a couple more days. And then the Friday, so just, so this all ha happened on a Friday night. So on Friday, I just, I was coughing the whole day. Like, I don't remember not coughing for like five minutes. And I was still short of breath, but I tried to just like stay in bed. So I, you know, and I wasn't talking to anybody or anything. And then at one point I was like, I should go to the ER. <laughs> like, this is not good. So I went to um, uh, the emergency department that I'm a resident at and, you know, they put me in a room and one of my attendings actually was like, you don't look good. And then I, I was, I said something along the lines of, it's cause I'm not wearing makeup. Like, I was like, <laughs> <laughs> like oh. that's not what I meant. I was like, no, no, I'm probably, you know, he's like, you look pale. And he's like, you, you're to yeah. And then he's like, your heart rate is like in the one fifties and your respiratory rate is in the forties. Like, when did this all happen? So something definitely like worsened in the last couple days because yeah. I wouldn't have gone to work, you know, if I was looking that bad. Sure. Um, and so, so of course being a doctor, you know, where the worst patients, like I refused everything. I didn't want to stay. I was just like, just give me some fluids and some antibiotics. I probably have a pneumonia. Oh my God. And, give me some fluids. Yeah. Oi. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, I said <laughs> that. And and we got a chest x-ray and I had pleural effusions and um, what looked like so just pleural a weird... effusions, right? Just to make sure we're all on the same page. <laughs> the heart, the lungs have two layers of a lining and if fluid leaches out, it will collect in that potential space. And so we call that a pleural effusion. It's basically fluid around the lung. Lots of things can cause it. And in this situation, especially for you, not normal. Right. It was not normal. And it, it showed because they were like, we don't know what that's coming from. But then maybe there's like a multifocal pneumonia. And because I was I was actually the ICU resident just that week. So I was around <laughs> a lot of sick. I know. I know. I know. It was so weird. So um, rounding in the ICU when you meet ICU criteria. Yeah. Yeah. That they called me the fastest time from ICU resident to ICU patient. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Which you know we're we have that, we have we, that we humor. use dark humor in medicine as yes. a coping mechanism for sure. Yes, yeah, oh I was just God. about to say that. <laughs> yeah. So um, 
So I, I didn't want him, you know, I, I refused a BBG, <laughs> oh, which is like a blood gas to check your oxygen right, levels. Right, right. I refused a troponin because I was like, it's probably going to be a little high because I'm so tacky because um, my heart rate is so high. So, so what's I going just, through your head at this point, right? What is this place of I'm sick, something is wrong, I'm going to the emergency department, but I don't want anything done. Were you, were you frightened? Were you, did you know something was wrong and didn't want the reality? What was it? Do you remember that headspace? Because it's a, it's a challenging spot to be in. And as you're talking, I really feel for you in that place of, I feel like I'm 30. I'm in the prime of life. I'm fit. My career is on a rocket ship, but this is bad. And I don't want this to change. Is that part of that? I think there was a part of me that knew that something was really wrong, yeah. but I didn't want to accept it. Yeah. And, and that's why, like, I, I mean, at that point, I think that's how I was feeling. I'm having a lot um, of countertransference as you're saying that, because I did a podcast with my wife a couple of years ago. She was diagnosed with breast cancer right after she turned 30 mm-hmm. and she spoke very vividly. And I actually, I get emotional now, even thinking about it. Um, she spoke about that desire to hold on. Excuse mm-hmm. me, I'm sorry. Um, but she spoke about that feeling of, I know that something is really wrong. I don't want, uh, I'm going to hold on till the last possible moment. Right, right. I'm re- I apologize. No, it's okay. Is that the place that you were in? Because I, I worry about that as I'm speaking with you. It makes me so sad to know that I, this happens I, to people. <laughs> um, it I, does. <laughs> I, and I think... I think that was how I was feeling. Yeah. Um, so, so absolutely. And it was, it was, it, so I've, I've actually been an ER patient many times. Like I had appendicitis, I've had like a ruptured cyst. So it wasn't the first time that I was in the ER, but it was the first time I was in the ER that sick. Yeah. Um, and, and I knew, and I mean, not, not only am I an ED resident, but I'm interested in critical care. So I, I specifically, it gets really weird, but the, what I was going to do a fellowship in is, is everything that I went through. And so I had like read a lot about this stuff beforehand. And so, I don't know, I think there was definitely a feeling that I know something's wrong. Yeah. Um, and I just didn't, I just didn't want to accept it. I didn't think that it would be, you know, near death, but I knew something was off. Yeah. When were you told that you needed a heart transplant? It was about... So I got transferred a couple times to different hospitals because oh, I was, a couple of times. Wow. Yeah, yeah, I was complicated, but my hospital didn't do transplants. Okay. Um, and then and just to be clear again, mm-hmm. heart transplantation is something that requires centers where the entire team, from mm-hmm. environmental services to nutrition to wound care to nursing to physicians, that is what they do. You don't right. do a little bit of transplant medicine. That is what you do. And it's it's the whole team. It's not one surgeon and they do it all. It is every single person with an ID badge right, contributes right. to people getting through any sort of transplant, heart transplant being one of them. Yeah. So, so I remember – so what I went through right afterwards, I had to get a cath done. Yeah. And – after the cat, so this was maybe like day two or three at the, of the hospitalization, the reason why I got transferred is because my cardiologist, the, the attending, said that he thinks that I might need advanced heart failure um, measures. And, you know, he's like, there's something that might need to might need to be done now. At that yeah. point, he wasn't sure, but he would rather have me at a place that has advanced heart failure. Gotcha. Um, and by advanced heart failure, that's like VADs, like uh, 
ventricular assist devices, which right. help pump the heart and, and transplants. Right, right. Now, this is interesting. You're being seen by some attendings that you know. You're being rounded mm -hmm. on by people that you know. Mm -hmm. Were you – how did you want them to speak with you? Did, they, did you want them to speak with you from the perspective of, hey, man, pretend I know nothing – Mm -hmm. and, and talk to me like I'm learning this and hearing this for the first time? Or did you want that more sophisticated, hey, you know, you're, you're in stage four heart failure. This is what's going on. This is the process. All the technical terms, all the jargon, all the lingo. Where did you land on that? How did you want the information conveyed? So the, the first hospital that I was at, I was definitely being taken care of everybody that I knew. Yeah. Um, and like, I, I'm a very open person in general. I didn't, I didn't care. And I knew that they were great. Like I knew I was in good hands. Yeah. Um, but the residents, like, especially my co-residents, I mean, they were crying, like, oh, you know, wow. they were, yeah. And then my, my attendings, my ER attendings would come upstairs and it was just, it was crazy. And I think they had a harder time taking care of me because not only was I super sick, but I was their friend, right? Right, right. Um, so that was that. But at the other hospitals, I knew some of the residents from the other hospitals too. The residents, you know, were awesome because they treated me like a resident, which I liked. Yeah, like, yeah. You know, like, we, we, it was kind of like one of my own. So the ones who I didn't know and like would round on me would just come t talk to me about stuff and tell me what's going on. They tell me like, if I asked like what my hemoglobin was that day, they'd talk to me about it. Okay. Sometimes they just come by and say hi. So th that was that. But when, when the team would like round on me and it was more formal, I asked to just, it depended on the day, but I wanted to be spoken to just like a physician. I didn't gotcha. mind that at all, okay. but my parents wanted kind of more of a story. So yes. That's yeah. what I was going to ask, right? You have to bridge that balance because the other people right. in your room, right? They are on the other side of the equation. They do not understand this extraordinarily complicated jargon and lingo and stuff that could sound really scary. And you're their daughter and their friend and their loved one and their partner and everything else. Mm -hmm. That can be a tough road for you too. Did you ever have to be in that place of serving almost as translator to relate? Okay, here's what they meant when they said LVAD. Right. Here's what they meant when they said driver line, you know, all that. Right, sort of, did right. you have to do that work too? I, I did. Yeah. And you know what else? I had to almost make everybody else feel better about my situation. Like huh. a lot of people would come in and they'd be like, Oh my God, I can't believe this happened to you. Or they would cry. And I'd be like, it's okay. I'm going to be okay. But <laughs> <laughs> you just had to do that for me. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so it was weird because I'm supposed to be the one getting right. told that. <laughs> But, you know, I, I was, t I was almost like consoling others wow. most of the time. Yeah. Um, and, and I did like, I did feel okay. You know, once they put me on the pressers and, and the inotropes and all that, but once you had blood going back <laughs> to your brain, yeah. <laughs> once my LFTs weren't in the thousands. Oh my gosh. So you had shock liver and everything. I had, I think, yeah. Cause I know the LFTs were in the thousands. My lactate was like nine initially and then my bicarb was down to three so again um, what we're describing if people just let's let's go back to sophomore year in high school biology there are two different types of metabolism there's aerobic metabolism when the body is running on oxygen and there's anaerobic metabolism when the body does not have oxygen you were an anaerobe right <laughs> your yep. tissues were starved of oxygen and what you're describing is tissue death your liver's right. dying, your kidney's dying, your brain's not getting enough blood. The body will automatically shunt blood to the brain preferentially and uh, at the detriment of everything else. And that's what you're describing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's exactly it. Did you have to go on dialysis? 
No, I didn't. Um, luckily, I didn't have yeah. to go on dialysis. But most patients do end up going on dialysis right after transplant or right before transplant. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious. You've posted some extraordinary pictures on social media. And it's sort of this, it's this interesting before and after series of your body. And first of all, I really commend you for having agency over what's happened to your body physically Mm -hmm. and sharing it. And there was one picture that you put up where it's you lined. And what I Mm -hmm. mean by that is when we have people who are really sick, we have to put in a lot of what we call lines, basically invasive catheters to measure, to collect, to track, to do all this stuff. They're big. They go in the neck. They go in the shoulder. They go in the groin. They go in the chest. They're big. They're gnarly. And you put a picture of you lined up. What was that like to put that on social media? I honestly, I wanted people to, I want people to see how I'm doing because I don't think many people out there, especially physicians, like they don't really talk about, um, any illnesses or or not most of them that I know. So I wanted to put it out there and, uh, you know, for people going through it or for people who are interested in my story or for people who just want to learn more about it, you know? So I, I was okay with putting it up. Um, and I thought it was a great, it was a great picture. Yeah. (laughs) Because it, like I look pale and I look terrible and like I have all these lines in, but then like just eight weeks later I have like color again and yeah, I look yeah. normal. So, so then you say eight weeks later you have color again, you look normal because it's the before and after that mm-hmm. second picture because they're right next to each other is you post transplant. So from when you got sick around Halloween of 2018, how long did you have to wait before you actually went to the OR for transplant surgery? So I got sick um, Halloween. I actually went to the hospital because I was sicker on. In end of December, it was like right before Christmas. Oh, I, okay, got it. So yeah. some, some some a fair amount of time had elapsed. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't. I thought I was fine for a couple of months, and um, so I, I went to the hospital, and it was like right right before Christmas, and then um, and then I got transferred a couple of times, but I was told that I need a heart transplant, uh, and then within eleven days, I got the heart transplant wow. on January fourteen. So, wow! So you have two yeah. birthdays. I do. I do. And they're like two weeks apart. That's so cool. So was there ever a point where you were stable for discharge or did you have to stay in the hospital the whole time awaiting transplant? Yeah, I was not stable. I tried. I tried so hard. I told them I, <laughs> I can go imagine home. hearing I you speak. Home. I can imagine they're like trying to I convince can... you not to sign out against medical advice. So I, you know, I had a central line in and yeah. I was on, um, nitroprusside, which is, you know, it's one of those drugs that change like, your blood pressure could be so labile with yeah, it. Yeah. Uh, and then it I does was not on... come in a pill form. Right. And, and I was on, um, an inotrope and I, so, so medication to help my heart pump. And some patients are able to go home with those with, yeah. uh, with a pick line, you know, with the line, an IV line that's yeah. put in. Yeah. Um, but, and I asked for that, but I was too unstable yeah. and I asked for it many times. <laughs> <laughs> they did not want me going home. No, I'm sure. And so what was the experience of being told, all right, we have a heart, we have a match. We're going to the OR. So I always had a lot of people in my room. I mean, you can ask ask my doctors and my nurses, if they're listening to this, they remember this, like always had at least five or six people in my room and like, there's like presents everywhere and balloons and like, so I was used to just being surrounded by people on that particular day. I told my family, it was a Monday and I said, can you guys just like leave? Like, can can you guys just go out and have fun tonight? Like, don't think about me. Like, it's fine. I mean, I'm, I'm going to go to sleep in a couple hours. So 
So it was, it was weirdly the only, the, one of the only times that I was completely alone in my hospital room. Oh my um, gosh. Yeah. And then also my expectation for the call or the time that you get told you have a heart, I thought it was going to be like a whole bunch of people coming in and like, you know, like my, the residents and the attending and like the nurses and they yeah. were going to tell me I have a heart and like, give me like a heart balloon or something. But <laughs> But actually, all it was was my nurse came in and he said I had a phone call uh-huh. and I just I picked up it was like a a, fo- a zone phone or something and and I said hello. Now, <laughs> all I remember from this conversation is like match heart. I don't know what what else she said. Who was it? I, Do you even know who called it you? It was it was the transplant one of the coordinators. Okay, okay. Um, and she even said her name. I don't. I, I I I all I all I remember from the conversation is like, do you accept it? <laughs> and and I said. I said something like, sure, I have to do a call my mom now. <laughs> like, <laughs> so I think about like, this was the opposite of like, and there was nobody in the room oh and I had no way, like, I was like, what do I do now? <laughs> what do I do now? I love it. <laughs> and so she told me that OR time was going to be 2 a.m. They're going to uh, wheel me to the OR to make sure I call my family and all that. Wow. I hang up with her and then my nurse comes in. He's like, was that the news? And I said, yeah. And then I, and then I like vomited because I was so anxious. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I remember I was like, can you please get me some Zofran or something? And, um, and of course, like I couldn't eat after that. Right. I was so anxious and nervous and like nauseous, but I think it was more from the excitement. Yeah. Um, I was not scared. You know, people are like, you were about to get open heart surgery. I wasn't scared for that up until like the moment I went into the OR. Okay. Um, so that, so 2 a.m. was start time. Um, obviously, it, you know, it took a couple hours until they prepped me and all that. But I remember they were, so I had to do these chlorhexidine washes to, to make sure like everything's clean. Right. Um, with, you know, so I did that and then I got, I got ready. My mom had to, she came in and, you know, she took, she took all my stuff, all my belongings. And then, um, the anesthesia resident came in, consented, the fellow, you know, all those people came. And then at one point they were wheeling me, um, out of the ICU or the CICU to the OR. And I remember that's when I was like, I, my mom says, I said this, but I said, mom, what if I die? Oh, and, wow. and I, my mom always says, she's like, if you were supposed to die, you would have already died. Like you, you already went through so much. Like yeah. you're going to be okay. You already Which tried I, to die. <laughs> I know. She's like, she's like, you came close to death multiple times in the last three weeks. So you're not going to die. Wow. Um, Good job, mom. That's the I right know. way. To, that's the right thing to say in the moment. It was, it was a perfect thing to say. Yep. Yep. And, and I, I like, we went in and I remember it was just so cold. You know, the OR is always cold. Yeah. And that's when it all hit me. And I was like, oh my God, this is crazy. Like I'm going to, my heart is coming out of me and I'm yeah. going to get a new heart. And yeah. this is crazy. And but the the resident, the anesthesia resident who was in there was, you know, they were like talking. They were trying to get me to like, they were like distracting me and we laughed, um, which I appreciated. And then yeah. at one point they were like, what music do you want on? Nice. <laughs> and, that's awesome. And I told, them, I told them to put on Tupac radio. So uh, I love it on Spotify. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know if it was like on Pandora or Spotify. Oh, that's great. That also <laughs> really resonates with me. Um, you know, one of the things that my wife circles back to a lot, and it's the reason that her surgeon is part of our family. They had a short delay in the OR cause they had to change out, uh, anesthesia machines. Mm-hmm. And he sat with her on the gurney on the, on the, on the, you know, the, the, the bed right. to actually do the case. And he just sat with her and he put his arm around her and said, so let's, what do you want to listen to? Yeah. And that's, that's awesome. what really resonated with her. And, you know, so Jeff, if you're listening, man, thank you for doing that. <laughs> 
Yeah, I loved that. It was it was great. You know, even when they came in to consent me for a couple like blood transfusion and stuff, the the CT fellow yeah. was like hanging out there. You know, it was nice. It was nice to it's so that- cool. We're all humans, right? We're not exactly. robots. They're they exactly. they want you to do well. And they also are smart and they know that you're scared and they want to acknowledge that. And the way we can do that is just by being kind and talking mm-hmm. music and trying to keep things normal in an extraordinarily abnormal situation. And, and that's one of the things that makes what we do so wonderful and so compelling that in these moments of extremists, we can just talk music. Right, right. So how long were you asleep after the case? When do you, did you wake up and kind of have that eureka moment of, I have a new heart? I, it's actually, the whole thing is hilarious. Um, and so I, I remember I woke up, I was intubated and I had lines coming out of me everywhere. And I remember yeah. my best friend who's not in medicine, she's from LA. She came to visit me and she's like, you look like an outlet. <laughs> <laughs> she's like, what are these things? Like I had lines everywhere. <laughs> so that's what, that's what she called me, which was great. Um, <laughs> oh my God. I love yeah. it. Yeah. High five awesome. to your friend. <laughs> awesome. I know. I know. So she told me <sighs> that. And I, so that's how I, I, so I had all these things coming out of me and, and there were people in my room and then, um, Matt. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. I just so, need a second with that. That was really <laughs> funny. <laughs> that's exactly what it, what it looks like, right? When we have lines coming oh out of Oh my God. I've just never heard it like that. <laughs> oh, high fives to your friend. Thanks, Linda. If, oh, if Linda, listening. I hope I get to meet you someday. That is really good. <laughs> oh, goodness me. All right. Sorry. So, so <laughs> you're trying so to self-extubate no, again. I was. Yeah. And, and not. there's actually a picture of me, which I think I posted on my Instagram at one point, but it's me uh, trying to suction myself <laughs> oh, no. with, with restraints on. Oh, no. And, and the ICU attend, like the the CICU attending came in, um, and and I like, was trying <laughs> to talk to him. Like, what are you doing? He's like, he was like, we'll we'll extubate you soon. We just have to get another blood gas. And I was, and I remember writing down. I was like, can you at least increase fentanyl? <laughs> it, was, it was up the arrow worst. fentanyl. <laughs> yeah, it was the worst. It was. Oh no. I, I mean, being ex- being intubated and being that awake, yeah. and I felt so good. Like I had no, I had no pain, but I'm sure it was because of the meds that I was on. And I remember I was like, I'm so strong. Like I'm trying to like, I was trying to suction myself, <laughs> and oh. then and and that. So they extubated me, and I felt good. Like and just to make sure once again that we're all on the same page, extubation. <laughs> they took the breathing tube out. They allowed you to right. start breathing on your own again. Because when you're right. on a ventilator. Thankfully, I've never had to be on a ventilator for a prolonged period of time. I've had surgery where I think they had to intubate me. Um, Being on a ventilator from what everyone that I've ever asked this question says is that if you're awake on a vent, it's really uncomfortable. And so mm-hmm. what you're describing is just that na- it's not that you're a, you're doing anything wrong. It's that automatic response to a noxious stimulus. It's really uncomfortable. So you're going to fight it. Right. It's almost like you're breathing through a straw and you feel like you're not breathing because, you know, yeah, it was, it was terrible, but, but, you know, I mean, I knew I'd ha- I had to, I knew, I knew yeah. why I was in that state. Yeah. And then, um, they, so when they took the tube out, um, the only thing I, so it's very interesting because the whole time when I was in the hospital and the prior months before, like leading up to this, I thought I was fine. And actually my friends keep saying like, hashtag I am fine is your new thing because you never complained about anything. Yeah. So, but, but I took, like, I took a breath and I was like, Oh my God, like I'm breathing. Like 
I actually felt a difference. I, I was entered, like it, I wasn't energized, but like, I just felt rejuvenated wow. and like right out of the gate. That first, that's right, first, yeah, bre- wow. that first breath. And like it, I mean, you don't know how lucky you are to breathe until you can't like that Ooh. was, you know, going through that, that shortness of breath and, and doing all that. And, you know, but I, it was immediate. Like I didn't realize it would be that immediate. Um, wow. Yeah. So, so I remember my first breath and then all I remember is my mouth was really dry. So I kept asking my, my family and my boyfriend to get me water, but they couldn't, first of all, they can't get me fountain water because I'm officially immunocompromised. That's right. Um, and, and then also like I just got extubated, but I didn't care. And I was like, I don't care if the nurses like, just get it. Like I, I need something to drink. And my mom said, she said, that was the first time you actually asked for something. Like, she's like the whole hospitalization, you were fine. You were like, you, you know, you went with everything, but she's like, I felt so bad because you were begging for like water. Mm. And, and so my mom, you know, she, she's a mom. She went and got me water. And then, um, and then after, like I drank, like, I think three cups and then my boyfriend went and got me ginger ale. And so, so I tried to drink the ginger ale and then right afterwards I just threw up and then the oh. nurses came in and they were like, what is this? And I was like, I don't know. I think I just drank it before the surgery, like <laughs> 30 36 hours ago. Maybe it's that. (laughs) (laughs) You were feeling better. The shenanigans had commenced already. The nurse like, Oh good. Yeah, you're better. So there was that. And then, um, yeah. So I remember that and we laughed about that so much. Like I, they knew I was lying. Like, they're like oh, okay. for sure. You weren't their first rodeo. Like they, they know that you're going to wake up thirsty and that the family's going to bring you whatever you want. And yeah, yeah, no, that's awesome. What did it feel like to walk? Oh, it was amazing. Um, so prior to this, now I was trying to walk around the unit a couple times a day, yeah. uh, when I was like pre-transplant, but then they had me on nitroprusside that last week, yeah. which you can't walk with that because your blood pressure, you know, can go up and down. Yeah. And so I remember all I wanted to do was get up out. So I hadn't walked in like over a week. Um, all I wanted to do was, was get up. And I kept, I kept telling them, I was like, can you get like physical therapy in here? And this was post-op day one. So this was <laughs> can the day you get after. physical therapy? Yeah. <laughs> oh my God, you cracked then, me up. I love and it. Then, and then of course, like the CIC was like, well, she's stable for the floors now, you know? Like, right, right. I was like, I'm ready to, I'm ready to leave. Ugh. And so the physical. Oh, you started with the AMA again. <laughs> <laughs> it was so bad, but they got the physical therapist in there and he's like, this Ugh. is post-op day one. Yeah. Um, you know, it's okay if you, you know, you should take it slow. Yeah. But I was like, I don't care. Like I want it. So they got me a walker actually. And uh-huh. I took my first few steps and it felt amazing to like yeah. walk without getting, um, like dizzy. And, and it was, it, it was cool because it was that instant. Like it, I didn't realize you can get a new heart and then feel better that quickly. Of course I was in pain. Yeah. And that was the other thing is as a doctor, like I kept, I didn't want any opioids because of the whole issue that we have now, the whole opioid epidemic. And I kept refusing it, but then they had to come in and tell me like, listen, we want you to breathe better. Like 0.1 of Dilaudid, which is an opioid is okay. And so, so they had to give me some medications those first few days just so I can walk better and like take deeper breaths. But then I was fine after that. Wow. Mm -hmm. How much do you know about the person that, that was the donor? I don't know anything about them. Really? Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, do they give you that as an option? Do they let you, if you want to know, can you find out or is it, uh, do they keep the wall up? It's the opposite. It's if the donor family wants to know, okay. it's, basically, it's basically all up to them. Got it. To, so the donor family to, gets agency over it. Right. Got right. it. Okay. 
And then now, how far out from surgery are you? It's been about, it'll be 10 weeks. Wow. Yeah, 10 weeks this week. Where and are you on the recovery scale after 10 weeks? What, how would you describe where you are to, you know, where you were on, I guess, was it January 15th, did you say? Right, right. So I'm doing better overall. Um, I'm, I'm active, like I'm going to the gym at least once a day because there's nothing else to do. Yeah. Um, jogging slowly. Uh, I do have to watch my heart rate. So I got an Apple watch for that. Uh, and that's so, right. And we I had, had a conversation about that. Right, on Twitter. right. I remember that. Right, yeah. right, right. So I had to, so the only thing is I haven't started cardiac rehab yet, which okay. is weird because I'm already like jogging, but, yeah. um, the reason is, <laughs> oh, they're because gonna love the, you. Yeah. I, I know the reason <laughs> is because the, the cardiologist just wants to see me on telly, like how I, I how my heart does on telly. Right. Which, so, so, so I'm doing fine. Like physically, the only thing is I still can't lift up heavy stuff. Now, granted, I'm like a pretty small, like female. I, I weighed 90 pounds before this. So I always had trouble like lifting things, but now I try not to lift anything heavy. Um, yeah, I have like people 90, help me. You're 90 pounds of iron. Clearly. <laughs> what, um, are you in, I don't even know how to ask this. Are you in like a reflective phase? Like wh where are you with this journey? I mean, you've barely started. You've now got your whole life ahead of you. Mm -hmm. uh, have you even had a chance to, I mean, catch your breath for lack of a better term? <laughs> so, it's interesting. I think about the whole experience almost every day. And yeah. so the other thing is that when I was hospitalized, I was writing a lot oh. and, and I, I go back and I read those and, and I think about, and actually I use a lot of those in my blog posts. So, so, and I, I, I wrote everything down because my mom kept telling me like, you're going to forget some of this, just write it all down now. Yeah. Um, so, so I'm doing that and I'm, you know, it's very, I, every day I think about it, of course. And it's like this weird you really start to prioritize like different things in your life after, you know, a near death experience. Um, there's a few things that I, I really learned from it. And the first one is that that feeling that you're invincible <laughs> right before all this happened, I, everything was going fine. And it's almost like this happened to me, but it was, it was like humbling. Like it was, I can't, I can't even explain the feeling, but it was like, you have to remember that with the ups comes, you know, the downs. And, but with that being said, the other thing that I keep thinking about is like, sure, you can have the worst thing ever happen to you, which I feel like this is probably the worst thing that's ever happened to me in my life. Um, but you can overcome it. Like you really can. I mean, the human spirit is, is amazing. And like just the, your mindset and, and the way you think and the way you, you know, your motivation and all that matters. Um, but you can overcome anything. Like, like if I can go through this, anybody can do anything, honestly. What I look forward to when you come back on the show in six months or so, or mm -hmm. whenever you're ready, mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. to explore that a little bit. Because actually on the podcast, it's a real interest of mine to explore and to learn about the levers that we can pull that give people the the fortitude to actually get through these things. Because it can come off, right? And I'm not saying you do this, but mm -hmm. when people say, I can get through anything, it can sound like a platitude. Right. But there are real examples and real levers to pull around mental toughness, around right. stoicism, around resiliency, and around learning how to lean on other people and being adaptive so that you can move through these things, whatever they are. And we've been able to have some amazing conversations with people around this. And I think that that's where you and I are going to pick up. I want to talk to you for four more hours, but that's not fair. <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> but you'll come back and we'll talk about exactly Absolutely. that. And that'll also, you'll have had a little bit more time to reflect. But mm-hmm. I do want to just say one of the things that you do wonderfully is you write beautifully on your blog. And I, I hope we've navigated this such that we haven't stepped on a lot of the stuff that's on your blog. I don't think that we have because I want people to go to your blog and, and read <laughs> you. But you also reflect a lot on social media almost in real time, which is so cool. Mm-hmm. Where do people find the stuff that you're doing, whether it's on social media or your writing or where do they hear about your journey? It's usually through social media. Um, and then through that, they they go to my blog. Yeah. Um, and I've met a lot of amazing people through this whole experience, which I love. Like sure. I've met other physicians with transplants and all yeah. that. So yeah. What is the website for your blog and how do people find you on social media? It's www.ach. So it's a change of and then he dot art. So instead of .com, it's ART. Gotcha. Um, and then my uh, Instagram for it, which is the main thing that I use for the blog, is a change of heart blog. Um, so yeah, it's pretty. It's pre- with. Uh, I'm sorry. Is that with the underlining? So it's underscores right between the words. Gotcha. And I'll have that on the show in the show notes and everything else as well. I like your Twitter feed a great deal. What's your Twitter feed? It's A G E M three three. So what is the three three? I meant to ask you. That's my favorite number. Oh, okay. I'm a, I'm an Alonzo Morning fan. Oh, <laughs> I, I love Alonzo Morning, a kidney transplant recipient. Very nice. I actually, yeah, that's the that's it's interesting how oh, I mean I sure. always liked him, but but yeah, he has a transplant. That's right. He played with his transplant. He was uh my dad was a nephrologist and he started a transplant service up in Northern California and I actually got to meet Alonzo Morning's uh transplant nephrologist when I was a resident and so Wow, yeah, that's yeah. awesome. It's very cool. This has been incredible. I uh, I really appreciate you taking us all along this journey, and it's it's so wonderful that you've made it so easy and transparent for us to follow you. Everyone wants to see you continue to to thrive and to do well and to navigate this unbelievable roller coaster you're on the, the way that you have. And so this has been a real privilege, and I, I'm I'm grateful to you for coming on and and speaking so frankly and open and honestly about this. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com, and please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show, and you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.